This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, great to see you guys and hear you guys again. Man, that was a brutal cold I had. And you know, Ron, for the first time in three weeks, I, I tell you, I feel like Tom Brady. Which means I tell you the same thing that Tom told Gronk after Sunday's defeat of Kansas City. You know what I'm talking about. We're playing forever, baby. <laughs> I don't think Gronk's going to be playing forever. Gronk looks to me like he's slowing down. He's still yeah. a dangerous player, no doubt about it, but he doesn't look to me like he's got that same explosiveness. He reminds me a lot of uh, what happened to Ben Coates, who was a great tight end here for about six years. And then he you know, had a couple injuries. They worked him hard. And you know how it goes. You know, you're over the falls. So I, I, yep. It just doesn't look the same to me. Well, Gooseman, if, if Brady, you're talking about Brady, not Gronk, if Brady can defy the odds and say have five more years in the NFL, how much longer do you think we can go on the Talk of Fame network? Slow down. Tom Brady is on a pace to throw a career-worst 18 interceptions. In the <laughs> I don't oh. see him defying odds and playing five more years. Better chance we're still going in five years than Brady. <laughs> so uh, you've already answered my question. Who's out of work first, Brady or us? I guess you're saying Brady, right? Brady. <laughs> right? Exactly. I'll be working until I drop. Brady, he'll be working until <laughs> Vontez Perfect drops on him. <laughs> <laughs> well, all as I know is that uh, we're going to work 10. Today, because we have a lineup of guests that includes former defensive lineman Ron McDowell of Washington's Over the Hill Gang, also a great Buffalo Bills player, Hall of Fame voter John Clayton on the best Seahawks not in the hall, and also on the legacy of the late Paul Allen, and former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal on the passing of former Packers fullback, and Hall of Famer Jim Taylor. And uh, I swear, guys, every, every time someone like a Jim Taylor passes away, and he's someone I, I watched and rooted against when I was a kid, and maybe you guys did too. I honestly feel like a piece of my childhood has been removed. I don't know if you feel that way, Ron, but it's yeah. like somebody tore it away from me. No, no, you're right. We've arrived at that age where <clears throat> nearly every day there's somebody on the obituary page whose name sounds uh, yeah. awful familiar. Remember when I was a kid, you know, you hear your parents talking about, oh, you see, this guy passed, and you wouldn't know who they were. So you go, like, what the hell are they talking about? Now I'm that person. <laughs> yeah. Goose? In 62, the Packers had, I think, the greatest team of all time. Yeah, Taylor was right. the MVP of that team. Best yeah. Best yeah, great player on a great, great team. Player. Hard man. Well, he was. Uh, we're going to talk more about Jim Taylor and more about a lot of things when the talk of fame continues. But first, let's listen to this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I see with the New England Patriots identified the guy who last week threw a beer in Tyreek Hill's face, and they say they're going to ban him from future games. And, Ron, no offense here, just wondering, but that guy, uh, it wasn't you, was it? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I would be sitting... Uh, uh, in the weed section, the very mellow section. You know, like, hey, what's going on? Got the new Oreos. Uh, but, you know, to me, that's another example of, uh, uh, I know some people say I'm going to uh, get off my lawn crowd, but it's a generation of young people who don't know how to act in public and who think they have the right to say and do anything they want without uh, repercussions because uh, they live in a world of anti-social media. And that's it coming to life right there. That was absurd. If that guy, if, if he had climbed in the stands and popped him in the face, everybody would have said what a terrible guy he is. But he would have been well justified. 
Well, good to know, Ron. Uh, we protect the innocent here. Good to know you're absolved. No, uh, but now the more apt question. You ever thrown a beer in someone's face? And if you uh, did, what happened? I have never thrown a beer in anyone's I have thrown a few other things in someone's face. Those <laughs> like things were right attached. And left. Yeah, they were attached <laughs> to my wrist. Uh, but right. no, never, never a beer. To me, that's a punk move. You know, that's a guy who's looking for a pillow fight, not a real fight. That's, that's right. Well, that's also good to know, Ron. Um, well, it's been a good week for you uh, then, Ron. I guess, you know, we got the Red Sox. They're, they're still in the middle of the series of Houston. got the Patriots beat the Chiefs. Uh, the bees are doing pretty well, uh, and you won't be prosecuted. Congratulations. All in all, pretty good week. Yeah, it's a great week for me, no question about it. Uh, and a good week even for my young hockey team, the Neshoba Grizzlies. Uh, they lost a tough game, but they had only one sub and played their hearts out and played with honor and uh, uh, really played great. So it's been a great day. And that was the most important game to me all weekend, but it was a great weekend. You're right. Maybe they should get a new coach, right? No, well, that, that's what some people are saying. No question, <laughs> including my wife. And, <laughs> and down there in Dallas, Goose, we haven't forgotten about you. I guess they're beginning to say, "How about them Cowboys all over again?" Right? I mean, last week I, I remember the, these guys on Twitter, all over Twitter, they wanted Tony Romo to come back. Um, now Dak Prescott's what the best thing since the mechanical bowl. What's going on down there? Yeah, that game against the Jaguars was the blueprint for how the Cowboys want to play: run the ball, get ahead, and run the ball a lot more. I thought the key last week was the Cowboys incorporated Prescott's legs into the offense. Right. He was a great runner in college. He had 900-yard rush games, but the Cowboys have done very little with him uh, mobily in the NFL. They want to make him a pocket passer. Well, they cut him loose last week, rushed for 82 yards, paired that with 100-yard day by Elliott. Cowboys controlled the wall for 40 minutes, scored 40 points against the NFL's best defense. Going forward, look for Prescott's legs to be a big part of what they do in offense. So, Goose, who do you think is the bigger threat to Philadelphia, Dallas or the Redskins? I'd say Dallas because of the defense, but by a very thin margin. Scoring defense is the single most important stat in the championship equation. The Cowboys have allowed the third fewest points in the league. They've allowed the mm-hmm. fourth, fourth fewest yards. But Redskins are right behind them. They've allowed the fourth fewest points, fifth fewest yards, but give the Cowboys the edge, better pass rush. Yeah, okay. Well, um, if you ask me, and I know you guys didn't, I think the biggest threat to the Eagles, the Eagles. <laughs> to me, it's their division to lose. Um, anyway, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I, I, I know we're going to have John Clayton join us, by the way, uh, shortly. We, we prefaced him in the first segment. And I know he's going to talk about the best Seahawks, not the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But I also want to ask him and ask you guys about the legacy of Seahawks owner Paul Allen, who passed away this week at the age of 65. Now, I'd almost forgotten about his role in keeping the Seahawks in Seattle until I read about him this week. But if it weren't for him, remember Ken Baring? I mean, Ken Baring owned that team, and he would have moved them to Anaheim in 1996. And and there'd be no 12th man now. There'd be no Seattle Super Bowl. And there'd be no pregame walks to Pike Place Market, which I always loved when I go up there with the Chargers. But Paul Allen saved the Seahawks by keeping them in Seattle. And, and he was one of the few owners who did what I love, Goose. I mean, he, he did everything quietly without drawing attention to himself, and, and I think he's, he's going to be missed by everyone. Yeah, he certainly was old school. He'd have been a better fit in the ownership fraternity of Lamar Hunt, Dan Rooney, and Wellington Mara than in the current group of Jerry Jones, Robert Kraft, and Dan Snyder. He was big money, but quiet money, certainly not loud money. Well, you know, yeah, he meant... Uh, uh, you know, he'd be missed, but probably not by as many people as he should because most people don't uh, know him for just the reasons you guys point out. He's the polar opposite of Bob Kraft and Jerry Jones, you know. Uh, they're from the look-at-me crowd, and he was from mm-hmm. the don't-look-at-me crowd, you know. You could, uh, <laughs> you know, look at everybody else. Uh, you could never find the guy, even at the NFL uh, owners' meetings. How time? How many times you ever even see the guy? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, vi- and, and plus Ron. I mean, he had a zillion interests. It wasn't it wasn't football. I mean, he had a lot of interests. It was right. obviously the tech industry, but his music as well. I mean, he was an accomplished musician. He was all over the place. Yeah, no, he did a lot of things. I mean, he uh, uh, you know he tried to build a miniature Central Park in downtown Seattle, and the voters uh, you know he was going to give him the land. I mean, and the voters fought him on it. So he said, okay, fine, forget it. Uh, and he, bo- he instead he built what is now the headquarters for Amazon. So well, there yeah, you go. Yeah. I give you a free yeah. park or. I'll tell you what, I'll do this. <laughs> it's not bad. Well, that's a great accomplishment. But to me, one of his greatest accomplishments, certainly in football, was getting out of the kingdom. You guys have been there and, and, and putting the game where it belongs, which is outdoors. Um, because that new stadium they've got, that's, Ron, I think it's one of the best venues in football or baseball for that matter. Yeah, well, certainly one of the loudest, especially for an outdoor stadium. You know, I used to hate the kingdom. I was there a lot, obviously, with oh. the Raiders. And the thing that I remember most about the kingdom was a pounding headache you would have oh. every time you left yeah. that dump. And then <laughs> you'd go to that Irish bar across the street when I was still drinking and go in there and try McCrory's. To, McCrory's. Yeah, McCrory's and try to drink away my headache. You know, it's just like, uh, <laughs> or give myself an even place. better one. Great <laughs> <Right> place. <laughs> for, for 13 years, I went up there as a beat writer in AFC West. As much as I like the city of Seattle, I hated that Sunday afternoon in that kingdom. It was so dark, so dark. gloomy. Dark, yeah. yeah. I agree. Football belongs yeah. in the great outdoor. And then you run those stairs to the, the press box. Whew, man. It's like running five miles outdoors. <laughs> anyway. Well, Aaron Judge isn't around anymore, but uh, I still am. All rise. Here comes the judge. And that's my cue to present this week's candidate for our weekly State Your Case segment. And do I have a winner, guys? His name is Eddie Kotal, and I know what you're thinking. Who? Well, that's what I said when someone asked why he wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Eddie Kotal is a former Packers player and assistant who was head of the L.A. Rams scouting department for two decades, was such a pioneer that those close to the game consider him the father of modern scouting. Now, he's hired by owner Dan Reeves, not that Dan Reeves, Dan Reeves in the Hall of Fame. In in 1946, Eddie crisscrossed the country in search of the best players he could find to help Dan close the gap with arch-rival Philadelphia. And you know what? He did. First of all, he was a tireless guy, spending all but two days on the road during one nine-month period looking at players when others were not. Second, he was prepared. Um, he collected a mountain of information that the Rams carried with them in trunks to the annual NFL draft. Then later, under Reeves' direction, they were the first to have telephones installed at the draft so they could get last-minute information on draft picks. Essentially, they had more information on people than anyone else. More important, he helped the Rams break the color barrier uh, along with Cleveland. In 1946, they drafted UCLA's Kenny Washington. Then they added Paul Tank Younger and Deacon Dan Tyler, two-thirds of the bull elephant backfield. Um, in short, I mean, he was way, way ahead of his time, um, and he, he was a guy that others imitated, uh, and he was way ahead of his time in finding players that others wouldn't look And I mentioned Tank Younger. He was the first American or African-American drafted from an all-black college. Tank went to Grambling. But it didn't stop there. He found players in places that most people hadn't heard of, like Andy Robostelli of Arnold College, Eddie Metter from Arkansas Tech. Deacon Jones at South Carolina State, and he didn't stop there either. He found Big Daddy Lipscomb, touchdown Tommy Wilson, and Goose's favorite guy, Dick Knight Train Lane in service football. But he didn't stop there either. He found Casey Jones at the University of San Francisco, where they had won national basketball championships. But the Rams drafted him as a 30th rounder in 1955 as a future choice. And he also found Bob Boyd, wide receiver Bob Boyd, on the track. He was a uh, NCAA champ in the 109.8 seconds. In short, Eddie Cattell 
stock the Rams with so much talent that Hall of Fame nominee Bucko Kilroy said the Rams had, quote, more personnel in 1950-1951 than the rest of the league combined. Now, Eddie Cattell's scouting system was taken by former Rams GM Tex Schramm to Dallas, where the Cowboys expanded it with computers and where it again worked. Now, Tex is in the hall, so is Dan Reeves, and so are many of Eddie Cattell's draft picks. But what about Eddie? Most people don't know who he is, and I think it's time we did more than simply remember him, Goose. It's time we enshrine him. Okay, Clark, Eddie Cattell or Gil Brandt? Oh, wow. Well, I'm, I'm going to go with Eddie um, simply because he was the first one in the door. And I do think many of the, the things that the, the Cowboys did uh, when Gil was there and Tex was, was there were based on what Eddie Cattell did with the Rams, where, of course, Tex worked. Anyway, if you want to know more about Eddie Cattell, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, and you'll find a piece pushing him for the hall. In the meantime, we're going to commercial. When we return, it's the professor, John Clayton. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, Shay, sound the bell, would you? That means school is in session and the professor is in. That, of course, would be John the Professor Clayton, who's been covering pro football since he was a high school student, writing a twice-weekly Pittsburgh Steelers report for the St. Mary's Daily Press in 1972, and now 46 years later, John's still at it. After covering the Steelers for the Pittsburgh Press, the Seahawks for the Tacoma News Tribune, and the league, of course, for ESPN. Now, John, as everyone knows, was a senior writer, talk show host, and regular on ESPN's football broadcast, but he never lost connection with Seattle. In fact, he still lives there and, as a Hall of Fame voter, is here today to school us on the most deserving Seahawks not yet enshrined. Welcome back, Professor. Nice to hear you, boys. Well, Judge, I just want to say right in front of the court is that uh, if I did anything wrong, I'm not guilty. But uh, thank you, Judge, for that. Your Honor. You you You're you welcome, Professor. Hey, John, before we get to the Seahawks, uh, I want to get to their owner, Paul Allen, who passed away this week at the age of 65. Uh, we spoke about him earlier on this broadcast, and I was wondering two things here. A, how well you knew him, and B, what you remember most about him. Yeah, well, I mean, he certainly is the most elusive owner in the national, and maybe in all of sports, because, uh, you know, he bought this team. Now, remember, he's a big NBA guy. I mean, I remember the one time I was able to get an interview, and I understand he doesn't get in hardly any interviews. Media doesn't have access to him. He's great. A philanthropist like mad. He's just amazing as far as that goes. But I still remember the, the one time that when I was at the News Tribune, and I was the lucky one to be able to break the story that he was buying the team. I had great sources that I really stayed with for about six months while he was in the process of buying it. And so uh, what happened is I, I'm sitting down, and I realized this guy is unbelievable. So like, if, I, if I'm in planet Earth, as far as his mind, he's in Mars. Like, for example, one of the things he was telling me was that he would go to NBA games, and uh, he internalized all the stats. So, like, for example, the field goal percentages and the free throws of both teams. And what he would do as the game is going on is visualize what the uh, shooting was and then adjust the stat numbers to correct numbers as it's going on. And I was thinking, <laughs> oh, my heavens. <laughs> This mind, this mind is incredible, and I think you can see it in what he was able to do, you know, both 
with uh, Microsoft, you know, coming into uh, the different things that he got involved with, you know, the NBA. I mean, a lot of the things that he's, I mean, he, he has so much of downtown that uh, he's either bought into, given things, and all that. The guy is just a remarkable mind. And I realize when you're sitting there as you know, a ghetto guy from Braddock, Pennsylvania, looking across to Paul Allen, is like, I'm not even on the same planet as this guy. My mind can't even match it. But that's the thing that I remember the most. And the one thing that uh, he did, he did this basically because Ken Baring was such a bad owner, tried to take the team to Los Angeles, and you know, really ran the team into the ground. And it was his mission to basically, thanks to the help of John Nordstrom, to uh, come into this play and then try to save the franchise. It was a tough thing at the beginning because there were so many things working against him, but he did. And now he established a, a brand with the sports world with the Seahawks that now is one of the best traveled teams in the league. I just literally got back from Wembley Stadium in London, and it, honestly, it was like a Seahawk home game at CenturyLink. There were so many fans from the Seahawks that were there, and the biggest thing that you noticed, the Raiders were coming on the field, and what were the, you heard a big boo. And it wasn't because you know they thought John Gruden had a bad year with personnel. The boo was basically all the Seahawks fans booing the Raiders, and it's like, I can't believe this. But that's the brand that he was able to establish and really has developed one of the best franchises in, in the National Football League. Well, uh, well how do you uh, to, to kind of get to their potential Hall of Famers there uh, that maybe have been overlooked because you're in South uh, Alaska and nobody saw you for many years? So how do you look at a guy like <laughs> Sean Alexander, who was a league MVP, he once had 27 rushing touchdowns in a season? Uh, is he... Hall of Fame worthy? Is he certainly worthy of Hall of Fame debate? How do you see Sean Alexander? Yeah, I just don't see enough yards over a period of time. Maybe over time it could be evaluated like a Terrell Davis type of thing. Because, you know, he really got off to a slow start. And then he started to build and build. And, I mean, he got Mike Holmgren to a point where he has the big, you know, 1,700-yard season. But I don't think there's enough there. I mean, there's you know a couple more that I know that we're going to be talking about at the Super Bowl. You know, whether it's going to be Steve Hutchinson or Kevin Mawai, I think that they're more worthy. But I think that, uh, you know, Sean just didn't have enough yards during his career. He did have that, you know, real good two- to three-year type of run, four-year type of run, but I don't think it's going to get him you know, much into conversation that would have been able to advance it more. Well, another runner there that always strikes me is, is Ricky Waters. He's one guy I believe has been overlooked. I don't know if he's a Hall of Famer, uh, but he rushed for over 1,000 yards seven times. He did it three times. Uh, uh, I mean, he did it for three different teams. I think he topped 1,200 yards three years in a row in Seattle, uh, and you never even hear him mentioned. Uh, how do you see him, Ricky Waters? Uh, I still think he's going to be. I mean, he's much. I think he's closer, certainly, than uh, than Sean. But still, I think he's not going to be. I think what's going to end up happening, like it's happened before. I think he's going to make the uh, you know the twenty five, and then he'll struggle to get the fifteen. Now, maybe that's wrong. But again, I think that uh, you know, I think he's a better candidate, particularly with the, the durability, the long term numbers, all those different things. But I still think he's going to fall short of the fifteen. You know, if he gets in the fifteen, he deserves to at least to be talked about in the room. But I think in the end, it's not going to. It's, it's going to go better than it would with Sean Alexander, but not good enough. The one, the one that's going to be interesting is going to be Marshawn Lynch because uh, he might have a more viable case of the three, other two running backs we're talking about. I mean, he's gained over 10,000 yards. He's been able to establish you know, an amazing brand. And, and him coming back and, you know, if he can put together a 1,000-yard season, maybe that's not going to be enough. Maybe 11,000 yards isn't going to be enough. He, was, he now has just crossed 10,000. But I think, you know, of the Seahawks candidates, he's probably the strongest of the three, even though, again, if he goes to the Hall of Fame, he may not say anything, but uh, because he's worried about getting fined. You know, John, I remember running into Ricky Waters up there in training camp one summer, and I said, boy, Ricky, if you had just stayed with the 49ers, you'd be a certain Hall of Famer. And he goes, 
I am a Hall of Famer. You looked at my numbers. I said, yeah, I have, but the Hall of Fame is about more than numbers, although you wouldn't know it lately. But I said, no, the Hall of Fame is about more than numbers. He said, I'm going to be in the Hall of Fame. And I said, okay, we'll see. And I agree with you. I I just think he's not going to make it. I I think he certainly has a case, but I don't think he's going to make it. Well, I've talked to a few voters, and I know that uh, they voted him into the 25, and so I think he is going to make the 25. Yeah, so, but right. again, can he break the next barrier to get to 15, and it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. John, I want to go to the bigger picture here, and it's just at the very top where I was talking about how you're going to talk about um, the, the most deserving Seahawks. Well, let's ask just sort of the general question. Who in your mind is the most deserving Seahawk who's not in the Hall? I mean, you're a guy that got Walter Jones and Cortez Kennedy enshrined or helped get him enshrined. Uh, yeah. Who's the most deserving Seahawk who's not in Canton? Well, I mean, I still think that uh, the, the two offensive linemen, Steve Hutchinson, because he was a dominating type of guard, and Kevin Mawai, because you know, he had such a long career with the Pro Bowls, and he had a uniqueness in what he was able to do as a, uh, as a center. Because, I mean, you don't, I mean, there's only a few pulling centers in football history that were that good. You know, Dwight Stevenson was one, but, I mean, Kevin Mawai was just relentless. I mean, he's one particularly, he really developed that so much more when he was with the Jets, being able to pull out uh, from the center position and then go knock an outside linebacker or down, and then actually carry him a couple yards because, I mean, he was relentless and he would go to the whistle. But I think those are the two deserving guys that right now, uh, you know, the the next one's knocking on the door to get in. And then as time goes on, I guess, you know, five years from now, starting to take a look at some of the guys like the Legion of Boom and all that stuff. But they're not up for votes right now. I think the two offensive linemen right now are very strong candidates. Well, John, since you mentioned that Legion of Boom, I mean, do you see anyone, you mentioned Marshawn Lynch too, but do you see anyone coming off their Super Bowl winning team who's on a career arc that might lead him to be debated for the Hall? Oh, no question. I think Richard Sherman, despite that penalty that he had in the Green Bay game, I mean, he's, he's still remarkable because here he's coming off the Achilles injury, and he literally went about three or four games when, you know, he wasn't injured, and nobody threw on him. I mean, just, he, you know, had very few, and that's, again, what he was able to do when he was with Seattle. So Sherman would be one, and clearly the next step for Earl Thomas. Earl needs more time to develop, but I think that, uh, you know, he's had a Hall of Fame-type career because, I mean, his play up until the age of 29, and even him having the weird holdout that he had. I mean, he played, He probably played some of his best football not even going to training camp. It's kind of like Walter Jones. I mean, Walter Jones you know, had two holdouts on a franchise tag, you know, came in in the last minute. I still remember the one where he came in the week before training camp started and pitched the shutout, was not beat by anybody uh, in, in a sack for the entire year. And you go, whoa, that's amazing. And, of course, I mean, he was a guy, because of a stomach ear, ear problem that he has, he couldn't take pain medication. And so he fought through a lot of pain and played some unbelievable football. But, no, I think that uh, Earl certainly is going to be up for consideration. Does he have to do more, though, at this point? I mean, if his career stops now, uh, I think he'd have a hard time, especially playing the position that he plays, don't you think? I would agree, 100%. I think that uh, you know, it's, it's nice because you know, it kind of puts him in that Bob Sanders category because yeah. if he doesn't play much longer, I mean, Bob Sanders had a great career, but you know, right. if you're only talking about uh, you know, seven, eight years, I don't know if that's enough. And, you know, if you're going to be in a safety, safeties have some of the hardest chances to get into our hall. And so because of that, I think uh, there's no question in my mind. I mean, he's on the path to be a Hall of Famer, but that path has to continue. He needs a couple more years of great football to be able to get in. You know, one of the guys that we hear about a lot here uh, from uh, from fans and listeners, all that is, you know, Tom Flores, Tom Flores, Tom Flores, two Super Bowl champions, and and, and look, Tom Flores accomplished a lot of things, uh, <clears throat> both as a, as a coach, uh, a first Hispanic uh, head coach, first Hispanic to start a quarterback in pro football, wins two Super Bowls. How much did his 
tenure in Seattle uh, hurt any chance he might have had for the Hall? And do you think that it probably cooked his chances? Yeah, I think it hurt. I mean, again, when you're talking to coaches, and you know my position on that, I hope that eventually everybody agrees with me that we get the coaches over into the contributor category to try to start getting them in because you know, and I'm, I'm like most, it's like uh, if I have a choice between a player and a coach, I'm leaning toward the player. I'm sorry. That's why I hope that the coaches can move over into the contributor category. That's something I've been pitching for, and I hope at some point it does happen because coaches need to get in there. But I think that it did hurt his chances of going in because you know it wasn't pretty – now, again, some of that had to do with what Paul Allen was able to fix, which is get Ken Baring out of there as an owner and then uh, you know, get, get some players and some resources to try to get better players. But, again, I think it hurt him a little bit at the general manager position. I think it hurt him a little bit at the coaching position. So, yeah, and, and, again, like all coaches, I mean, Mike Holmgren's had a great career. I mean, you can go through the whole list, Don Coriel. I mean, all are deserving to get in. But I think in the end, you know, that, the, the, the stuff with the end of the Seahawk run and the fact that uh, he's a coach, that makes it hard for him to get in. Professor, thanks for the time, and thanks for the education. Well, thank you, Judge. Am I, uh, am I dismissed to uh, you know, dismissed. Or do I have to stay? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks. That was Hall of Fame voter John Clayton. Up next is former defensive lineman Ron McDowell. You're listening to the Talk for Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Ron McDowell not only was one of the best defensive linemen in NFL history, he was one of the most durable. He played 18 years of pro ball from 1961 through 1978, missing only one game in his final 15 seasons, and played 240 contests, which is the fourth most among NFL defensive linemen. Now, along the way, he went from one of the AFL's best defensive linemen during the 1960s to a great defensive end for George Allen's over-the-hill gang in Washington for seven of the final eight years of his career, picking up two AFL championships with the Buffalo Bills and starting for the Redskins in Super Bowl VII in the process. But that was then, and this is now, and now Ron has released an anecdote-filled autobiography called The Dancing Bear, my 18 years in the trenches of the AFL and NFL, and we are honored to have him here today to talk to us. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Ron, the first question to me is easy. You were six foot four, 265 pounds, and you once told Hall of Fame safety Kenny Houston that your best move was sucking in your stomach and making opponents miss you. That being the case, how did you ever get the nickname of the Dancing Bear? Well, I had to learn it somewhere. <laughs> I thought it was on the dance floor. But anyway, uh, no, that was kind of, you know, in football, well, I guess in any sport, uh, if you pick up a nickname, you've got to live with it, I guess. <laughs> and uh, so that was kind of tagged on to me. And uh, I, I lived with it. You know, it was, it was, mainly it was developed when I was playing them with, with the uh, Redskins. And uh, Sonny tagged it on to me by saying he could dance on a bar stool longer than I eat. And he said, no. 
I beat him. <laughs> <laughs> so he started it. Once he started that, then, you know, you're stuck for a thing like that. <laughs> One of the things that I found very interesting in there was uh, you were talking about negotiating a contract with George Allen, and he put a bunch of incentive clauses in there, which you agreed to, but then you, you asked him you wanted to trade your, your clause for sacks in exchange for him allowing you to move your seat on the team plane so you wouldn't have to sit with Richie Pettibone. Just wondering, <laughs> what was going on there? <laughs> uh, that was, so when we traveled, of course, we and, and he kept most of the vets, especially the old Royal gang, up front with him. And uh, so we, because uh, um, that way he had, you know, asked us quick asked us questions, keep talking to us, keeping us involved in what's going on, even when we're flying and that type of thing. And so he was he was notorious about not letting anything go by. <laughs> so he was yeah, I was sitting with Richie uh and uh, Richie was you know, he always played cards and he really didn't pay much toward what George was doing <laughs> and he would ask uh, me questions and so I'd have to, you know, of course, he was a safety and everything else, not just a defensive line. <laughs> and so I would try to answer his questions and make him, make him feel like we really knew what we were trying to keep up to and do and not, not uh, create any problems or at least get a jump on the opponent even in the air. So that's basically what that came from. And I told him I couldn't, I couldn't concentrate with him asking Richie the questions all the time. And so that was the end of the question and the seating. And the, he changed my seat, my seat so I could sit in a different location. <laughs> <laughs> Ron, and, and we're speaking with Ron McDowell on the Taco Fame Network. Uh, but Ron, you, you, as you mentioned, you were with the Cardinals. Uh, you also with the Oilers and Vikings before arriving in Buffalo in 1963, and I know you struggled with migraines and, and finding the right spot for yourself, but within a year of getting there, you became a starting defensive end on a team that went 12-2 and and would win back-to-back AFL titles with really one of the league's greatest defenses ever. So my question uh-huh. for you is this. What did Lou Saban see in you that the others missed? Well, when I got there, <laughs> I'd been passed around so much. I mean, it was in the same year. I mean, basically, uh, I was when I got the migraine problem with when I was with the Houston Oilers, and that's when I'd been passed down from the Cardinals in a sense. Uh, Pop Ivy, they, back then, Pop Ivy came out of the Canadian League and was the coach for the Cardinals, and also we had a few ball players, and our quarterback was was from the uh, Canadian League. But uh, I. Uh, I got along with them good because I, I played. I could play both pretty well. All the positions on the line. Uh, I played them one more time, another in a whole uh, career, and so I was able to uh, pretty well play everywhere. And we really had a lot of injuries that year. We lost a lot of players, and so I ended up playing a lot of different positions uh, on the offensive line and defensive line. And of course, Pop in Canada and everything else. And we we uh, had a lot of plays that were similar from the Canadian League that we could use, and that worked out all right for me. But then uh, I made it through the year, and then the following year I went. I, uh, I well, I got on the release me. Uh, I think it was about uh, four weeks or five weeks into the season, and it was, that was really kind of a confusing time anyway. 
and so I got uh, finally got uh, got released, and the Vikings then were trying to build their team. They were they were they were a new team in the league, and so they they didn't draft me. They called me up and Vanda talked me into signing a contract with them. And I told him about what had happened, and I've gone through all the examinations. And basically, I was getting blackballed. No one's, everybody's afraid to touch, touch me. They thought that I'd sue them and all that kind of thing, and just type of thing. And so, eventually, uh, Houston. Uh, I mean, you know, when I was with Houston, I played there about five games, and they released. They, I got them. My pop police got them to release me, so I could play. Uh, somewhere and uh, so that's kind of how I got away from both leagues <laughs> in a sense uh, and uh, it was quite an experience time because I didn't realize that you know uh, uh, that would happen and I didn't realize how I could get uh, get kind of shoveled out of the league but uh, yeah it did so, well obviously well, uh, when you landed in Buffalo you had you had you had uh, great experiences there, but uh, in 1971, uh, you end up with the Redskins with George Allen and the Over the Hill Gang, and, and unlike most coaches, he loved veterans. Uh, the average age of your starting team was 31. I think you were 32 when you got there. Uh, what did, you, what did yeah. you sort of make of that whole Over the Hill Gang thing? Did you like it uh, at first, or were you skeptical of, of what he was doing? I thought, I was, I thought that was big, one of the biggest breaks of my career, was getting, uh, <laughs> getting to George Allen. Of course, George Allen, uh, and of course, uh, Ralph Wilson was the owner of the Buffalo Bills, and he also owned some of the Detroit Lions, I believe. And uh, so, I was in a position with some people that they were just looking for talent. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I think they, uh, they, they, of course, they had they played against me before uh, the one time, and when I was with Houston, and he, uh, they, uh, so. They were looking for players, and they thought uh, Lou thought I could play, and I could play some places where he needed players. And they're trying to get players because they're trying to build their team as fast as as they could. And that was that was a great team because we had guys coming in, like Cookie Gilchrist coming out of Canada, or Ernie Worley coming out of Canada. There were some guys coming out of other places, uh, uh, a good athlete. You know, of course, we had Jack Kemp, who was a good friend of mine. He's a quarterback. And so we were really developing a team, and then we had the, the four guys up front. And I tried to think about that. That was Tom Sestak, probably one of the greatest tackles ever played in the game, defensive tackles. And and Jim Dunaway, out of, down there in Mississippi. And uh, then there was... Uh, 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 me, I was playing the other end, and then uh, Tom Day, who was, um, I think he was in Arkansas. And so we were the front four that went for 17 straight games without anybody scoring us on us on the ground. And uh, that that still hasn't been beaten. Probably never will be beaten. And, right. Uh, but so, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask you for a minute, though, about George Allen, uh, because, uh, you know, he's one of the great coaching figures. He had a, uh, that over-the-hill formula of using older veterans, and you guys got to Super Bowl VII uh, playing for him. Uh, what was different about him and, and all the other coaches that you had had? Well, he, uh, of course, we'd, I'd never met him or anything. I played against him. We played against him uh, twice, I think, uh, and uh, when he was at, uh, for the Rams. And then I, I was excited about the fact that I was getting old. <laughs> you know, 
I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay there forever, uh, anywhere in forever, I guess. And, and so, even though I was accomplishing some things, and, and so I thought, boy, this is a great break. Well, then when uh, Ralph Wilson hired uh, well, the Oakland coach and uh, brought him in, that kind of screwed his team up. And so that's when I started breaking down. They wrote, he wrote a big article about me, but I wasn't good enough to play for him and stuff like that. And so, uh, Rob, I mean, uh, Wilson called me and he, I talked to him. He called me off and he says, yeah, he'd written some articles about me in the paper saying I wasn't good enough to play for them. Right. And Ralph Wilson said, he said, you're good enough to play for me. He played great for me all these years. He said, I'm really worried about the situation. I think I've made a mistake. And I'm going to get out of this mistake as best as I can and as quick as I can. He says, I got George Allen calling me. He said, I got George Allen calling me every morning, at night, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, trying to trade for you and uh, get some drummers. And he said, I haven't. I, I, I know uh, it's your a little older now and I know you're probably I'm worried about the fact that we're going to start hitting the skids here and if we do you're going to be in their jeopardy also because of the situation where we bring in different coaches so he said he said what what I want to do is he wants several draft choices I'm going to trade you to him because that really helped your career and I said well I really appreciate it <laughs> so that's what he did he traded me and I knew it very well of it, and, and even afterwards we talked about it. And it was the big thing. So when I was when I got with George, it was really wanted to be there. It was it was the type of coach that listened to us. He knew what we were doing. He was a defensive coach, and that's what we were defensive players. And we knew how. And then we had so many guys that came with us. You had to be over thirty something to be in the Overhill Gang. So <laughs> most of us were defensive players, and. Uh, so it made a great combination. You also intercepted a lot of passes. I mean, I believe you got 12 interceptions, which is a record for a defensive lineman. How the hell did you intercept well, I, 12 to pass? Well, actually, 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 I had 13. <laughs> <laughs> the, one, uh, the one that I intercepted in the holograms and playing the Jets at the, the end of the one year. Anyway, that's just, that's not the bigger the point. But he, I got paid very well for those. <laughs> and so George, George, George gave, he was giving me around like, four or $5,000 for every interception. But uh, it was, uh, you know, something I got, got an act of doing and was able to work it out and, you know, that type of thing and So that was a big help. And then, so that really made it better. Yeah. Because you can make some money. Ryan, excuse me. Yeah. We've, we've, we got to run here, but I want to thank you so much okay. for joining our Over the Hill gang and best of luck <laughs> okay. with your book. Great. That's my pleasure. Right. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> that was former defensive lineman Ron McDowell. Up next, it's the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. It's that time again, Shay, so blow the whistle on us. That's the Two Minute Drill. Thanks. That means it's time for the Two Minute Drill with Goose Rick Goslin asking this week's questions. Goose Men, you're on. The Rams are the only unbeaten left, so who's going to ruin their perfect season? Dodger fans. Saints in New Orleans a week after they beat Aaron Rodgers and the Packers to get to 8-0. One great quarterback, too many. 
Buccaneers fired Mike Smith, the coordinator of the NFL's 31st-ranked defense. Can Tampa now start printing Super Bowl tickets? Absolutely. For Super Bowl 55 in 2021, Goose, it's in Tampa. <laughs> they can print the tickets, Goose, man. They just won't get to sell them. Speaking of coaches, John Gruden says the Raiders are not shopping Amari Cooper. He also said he wasn't involved in the Khalil Mack trade. Does Gruden have any clue what's going on in his building? Of course not. He runs the organization. <laughs> yeah, he got, he's got a clue what's going on in the building. just doesn't have a clue what's going on in professional football. <laughs> the Raiders and Seahawks drew the largest crowd for an international game in London since 2009. Was it the magic of the Raiders or the magic of bad football? No, Ron could answer this one. It was the magic of... The Raiderettes, football's <laughs> fabulous females. They have one of the great things ever invented. The Raiders are dead, but the mystique lives on. <laughs> Jerry Jones wheeled out MMA star Conor McGregor to inspire his Cowboys against the Jaguars. Who does Jones bring in to inspire his troops for this week's game against Washington? Stormy Daniels. <laughs> Maybe you should bring in the guy who whipped McGregor's ass and then beat up all his cornermen after the fight. <laughs> The NFL draft generated a record $125 million in economic impact for Dallas. What was Jerry Jones's cut? $125 million. <laughs> I would say considerably more than he's going to put on his income tax form. Sony Michael, Gene Stick Michael, or George Michael's sports machine? Michael Stanley Band. Best thing to happen to Cleveland since sudden Sam McDowell. Sony PlayStation. Unstoppable. <laughs> What's the bigger story in Boston this week? The Patriots, the Red Sox, or the Bruins? Habs, baby. They're closing in on the BZs. Please. Sox and Pats had 81% of all TVs tune into their game Sunday night, but the Pats had more than 2 to 1 more viewers. What's that tell you? Regular season game over the playoffs? Idiots. Do we know the identity of the New England fan who threw the beer at Tyreek Hill? Yes, sirree. Jonathan Kraft. <laughs> yeah, I know. He has two names. Mr. Stupid. And Ron Borges' troll. That's the end of it. <laughs> That's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. In the next 60 minutes, we have former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal on the passing of Jim Taylor. Our take on the Hall of Fame preliminary list and bubble wrap for quarterbacks. That's right. That's all that coming up here on the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. A little later in this hour, we're going to hear from Hall of Famer, a former Hall of Fame yeah. Packer. Oh, just try it again, Shay. Sorry. Start again. Sorry. Three, two, one, go. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. A little later in this hour, we're going to hear from former Hall of Fame voter and Packers beatman Cliff Crystal on the passing of Jim Taylor at the age of 83. But before we do, guys, I'd like to hear what you have to say about Jim Taylor because I know all of us watched him, and I think all of us respected him. Heck, Ron, you probably covered him. I don't know, but I know Cliff did. Um, so how do you remember Jim? That is, I mean, other than the guy who shared the same backfield with two other Hall of Famers, Paul Hornin and Bart Starr. 
Well, the Detroit Freebirds had a legendary sports cartoonist named Dick Mayer. And I remember before one of the Detroit Green Bay Thanksgiving games in the 60s, he drew a cartoon of Taylor running through a brick wall. There were bricks flying all over, and Taylor came running right through. That's how we felt about Jim Taylor in Detroit. You couldn't stop the man. Yeah, I remember him as just a, a hard-ass guy with mud on his face and a missing tooth. He always had a missing tooth. I yeah, think, shouldn't that's guy, right. Shouldn't he go to the right. dentist? You know, he's making a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> but to me, he was what pro football was for so long, uh, you know, a hard-ass game for hard-ass men, and which right. it sadly no longer is today. Yeah, yeah, I'm like you guys. I remember how tough he was. I also remember how dirty his uniform was. Yeah, all the time. Like, You're right. All he, this is in the dirt. He was just he was hammering people. I, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't like him. I, I didn't like him or Hornin because I was a Baltimore Colts fan. But man, geez, I admire both of them. It just seemed like they saved their best games for the Colts. Um, and, and I can think of a zillion of them. But but I'm going to ask you, Ron, any memorable temp- Taylor games or plays that immediately yeah. come to mind when you think of him? Yeah, one. This, you know, I remember him in the '62 championship game. You know, the wind chill was like eight degrees. He carried the ball oh, yeah. 31 times, and I remember <laughs> yeah. running over a guy there, the defensive back was in the hall of fame, and Jimmy Patton, who I really liked, yeah. and he hit him, and Jimmy Patton spun around like <laughs> like he was a top. <laughs> he just, <laughs> Jim Taylor kept running. Yeah, pick any game in Packers, play the Giants in the 60s. Taylor and the New York's Hall of Fame linebacker, uh, Sam Huff, handed each other. The yeah. whistle didn't stop the action. You know, The Giants and Huff seemed to bring out the best in Taylor. Goose, remember that 60 championship game with Chuck Bagnerick sat on as the game ended? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Time ran yeah. out. Wow, great. Well, as I said, we're going to hear more about Jim when we visit him later in this hour with former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal, who covered him in Green Bay. But now, well, now we're going to commercial. So you're listening to the Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Bay Packers didn't score again, but yes, that is Todd Rundgren banging on the drum. And I mentioned that because, well, because we're a Hall of Fame show. And for the first time ever, Todd has been nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Gooseman, what do you got to say about that? Well, the Zombies are also a first-time finalist. <laughs> the Zombies. A little more than your boy, Todd. They both belong, and hopefully they'll enshrine them alphabetically in reverse order. Oh, jeez. Well, to me, Ron won't agree with this, but it's astonishing it's taken this long for the Hall to wake up to Todd. But, you know, hey, Ron, it took us 45 years to get Jerry Kramer in Canton, so I guess anything's possible. Well, you're right. I mean, some guys, they just slip through the cracks. uh, And when they do, the cracks tend to fill in over them. And the next thing you know, you can't find them. Take you, for example. Flipping through the craps of life. <laughs> well, anyway, good luck, Todd. I'm not just pulling for you. I'm voting for you, and you should too out there, because the guy is to rock and roll goose what Bill Walsh was to the NFL. A genius. A genius. Genius is Michigan State football coach Mark D'Antonio, who went to State College last weekend without five starters, still put together a game plan that upset eighth-ranked Penn State on homecoming. That's genius. 
Oh, jeez. Genius is John Coltrane with his saxophone brother. That's genius. <laughs> genius, genius is Shea Raftus for not pulling out the Michigan State marching band when Goose is going on. When, in fact, Dartmouth is 5-0. and oh. Thank you very much. Are they really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're wow. going to a showdown, Ivy Showdown with Princeton, pl- November 3rd. Have they, have they played any boys teams yet? Um, Okay, anyway, Ron, thanks for that. I mentioned Bill Walsh, so uh, I'm going to stay on topic here and mention that one of his former players, and that's the late, great Dwight Clark, who will be honored this Friday night by his high school. That would be Garinger High School in Charlotte, North Carolina. They're going to retire his jersey, and um, Dwight graduated from there in 1975, went on to play for Clemson, of course, where he teamed with Steve Fuller, and he moved on to the 49ers where he... Again, made one of the most memorable catches in NFL history. Uh, Dwight was a friend of all of ours. He's a friend of the show. He died this past summer of ALS at the age of 61. And, you know, as I said, he was a friend of ours. Jeez, Goose, it seems like, and Ron, he was almost a friend of everyone outside of Dallas. And I, and I think this is a really a pretty cool gesture by his high school to do this. Yeah, no, it really is. You know, Dwight was one of those rare guys that uh, I, I always felt to, you know, the first time you met him, you, you seemed to think that you knew him better than you, than you there yeah. did, and, and he knew you, you know, and he, and he was glad to see, you, even though he never met you. For, you know, yeah, kinda, I mean, everyone liked him except maybe Everson Walls. I mean, yeah, right. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, it was just he he just had that ability to, uh, uh, you know, just make you feel like you'd known him for forever. Yeah, right. perfect guy. Hey, let me point out that uh, Garinger High has a pretty good track record for producing greatness. <laughs> TV's Charles Carrollton tracks Jim Beatty, all gra- also great. Wow. Wow. Clark wow. Beatty ran the first four-minute mile indoors. Wow. Yeah, I absolutely remember watching my wide world of sports on Saturdays. Peter Snell was around those days. Uh, I remember that. Uh, Jerry Lindgren. Um, remember that very well. I remember Jim Beatty. Um, and indoor track, I loved it. I loved indoor track. Anyway. Dr. Data, um, bringing the, bring the info as you Bringing the Yeah, I loved it. I love wow. track and field. Um, well, this isn't track and field, but there is someone else I'd like to mention. That, of course, is another friend of the show, Robert Dr. Doom Brazil. Um, Dr. Brazil was uh, honored at last weekend's Buffalo-Houston game. Hall of Fame President David Baker presented him with his Hall of Fame re- ring. So, um, Robert, who's another friend of the show, he's a member of the Hall's class of 2018 and was, according to Lawrence Taylor, that'd be LT. He said he was LT before LT. And I'm not joking, guys, because when Hall of Fame voter John McLean telephoned LT to talk about Brazil, well, Taylor said he patterned his game after it. Guess who? Dr. Doom. And Goose said, see, that worked out pretty well. Let me ask you this. If Brazil had played New York and Taylor in Houston, <laughs> what are the chances Brazil would have been a first ballot inductee and Taylor would have had to wait to become a senior nominee? Uh, better than Todd Rundgren's getting in the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame in his first vote. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say there was a pretty damn good chance of that. You're right. Now, he was a great player, as as we all know. Uh, another one of these guys, like we just talked about, talking about falling through the cracks, you know. Uh, he just, he was there, and, and then he just disappeared. And, you know, the way the game is, uh, it doesn't take long before they don't remember what you did, especially if, you didn't win, if your team didn't win any championships, uh, which is did not. Uh, and I think that probably hurt him as much as, as anything. But there's no question. You're right, Goose. If he plays in New York, forget about it. They're still talking about him. Well, I, I love the nickname, and, and we all love the nickname. And, Ron, I want to ask you, if, you, if we had a Hall of Fame of nicknames, 
Where would Doctor Doom rank? Well, it's up there pretty high. Now I'm a big nickname guy, as you know. Uh, uh, you know, to me, it's right up there with Doctor Death, Skip Thomas, Big House, my friend Steve Moore, who was called Big House because he was big as a house. Uh, you know, one of my all-time favorites. Uh, of course, was not in football, though, uh, which is Tupac, which is what the, the great Orioles manager, Earl Weaver, used to call his, <laughs> his closer, Don Stanhouse. He used to call him Tupac because he was so wild. He said, I go through two packs of cigarettes every time I bring him in to pitch. Oh, I, remember, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Doom ranks right behind Night Train Lane and just ahead of Big Daddy Lipscomb. <laughs> well, Gooseman, since you mentioned that, what's happened to nicknames? I mean, you don't hear anyone called... Night Train, or Crazy Legs, or Golden Wheels, or Dancing Bear? What, what happened? I think when Touchdown Tommy Vardell didn't pan out, you probably got a point there. But I think people are, are too busy, you know, getting offended now and tweeting uh, to to think of anything clever like yeah. like great nicknames. You know, uh, the, you know, imagine today. It, you know, if you had a guy named Lester called Lester the Molester, or he hate me, you know, the, 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 you know, the politically correct police would be all over you. Well, there are a lot of names, not nicknames, that are Ron Porges has been called. But that's because he's not afraid to tell it like it is, or, well, like he thinks it is. Same difference, I think, Ron, anyway. He's here with another Borges or Bogus to tell us about uh, what exactly, Ron? Well... The Chickens came home to roost Sunday night in full view of millions of American football fans uh, when Kansas City Chief rookie linebacker Breland Speaks was afraid to tackle Tom Brady for fear of the NFL's whistle-blowing vigilantes responding. Speaks had Brady wrapped up and in his grasp for a sure sack when he suddenly took his hands, uh, a hands-off policy here in the NFL's true anthem, please release me, let me go. And so he did. <laughs> He thought that Brady had, he mistakenly thought Brady had thrown the ball and he didn't want to get it flagged and fined and everything else. Of course, it turns out he hadn't thrown the ball. Brady ran in for a four yard, uh, touchdown, uh, in a, uh, you know, it was a pivotal play in a game that ended up 43 to 40. And it was also something else. It was bogus on so many levels it boggles my mind. The absurdity of the lengths that the league is going to keep uh, uh, quarterbacks not only upright but pain-free finally was exposed, in my mind, for the farce that it's become in that play. Because all those efforts have now led to players being afraid to tackle the quarterback. Now, all those points, all those passing yards, all those records that are being supposedly set, uh, they're as phony as poor Speaks' notion that Brady had thrown the ball. And, and the reason... Uh, it was just exposed when, when, when Speaks reacted in the way he did. You know, he chose not to play football for fear of a ref, referee retribution. After the game, he said, it was definitely on my mind, and it sucks. Now, <laughs> not everyone would think that was eloquent, but to me, that was a Gettysburg address of football. <laughs> it sucks. You know, <laughs> Speaks says, I'll finish the play next time. But you know what? He's not going to finish the play next time because he knows this. Old men in business suits, or loud Hawaiian suits if they're in Palm Beach, we're going to come up with these kinds of rules to punish the tacklers. Al Davis once famously said, the quarterback must go down, and he must go down hard. Today, Roger Goodell says, the quarterback must go untouched, and he must go untouched all game. That's what we've become, and it's bogus. Okay, Ron. So why hasn't the NFL made a in-the-grasp point of officiating emphasis? In the grasp gives Speaks a sack. You don't want him to go down, blow the whistle while they're standing and in the grasp. Well, that's very easy to explain why they haven't done that. Because it's a good idea. 
<laughs> hey, I, anyway, Ron, I love the please release me, let me go. Thank you, Engelbert Humberdink. Way to bring the thunder, Ronnie. And speaking of that, we're going to relive the thunder and lightning backfield of the Green Bay Packers. And we talked to Green Bay's Cliff Crystal about the late Jim Taylor. That's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, as most of you know, a former Green Bay fullback, Jim Taylor, passed away last weekend at the age of 83. Now, Jim was one of the best football players anywhere on one of the best football teams anywhere. That would be the Green Bay Packers of the 1960s. And neither he nor they should ever be forgotten. So with that in mind, we've invited former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal in the front of all of ours, who covered the pack for years, to join us today to tell us what he remembers most about Hall of Famer Jim Taylor. Cliff, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Okay, Cliff, logical question here, and an obvious one. What do you remember most about Jim, either on or off the field? Well, I think his most memorable game was the 1962 NFL Championship in New York. Um, 31 carries for 85 yards. Doesn't sound impressive, but those had to be the hardest earned 85 yards in the history of football, I think. Um, It was just a brutally cold day. Guys who played in that game have told me they were as cold as they were in the ice bowl. Uh, I can still remember watching that game and the swirling winds blowing the hot dog wrappers around the turf of Yankee Stadium. I think the field was about as hard as concrete. The Giants, after being beaten 37 nothing the year before in the championship game, were sky high. And they just didn't, they had a great defense, and they inflicted an unbelievable amount of pain and pounding on Taylor, and he just withstood it. He easily could have been the MVP of that game. Mitchkey was. And uh, interestingly, Bill Forrester, who was, I think he was a four-time Pro Bowl pick, he was captain of the Lombardi defenses that year, um, as well as several others. But he told me that Nitschke won it because he recovered two fumbles. Bill Forrester told me Nitschke didn't recover either fumble. (laughs) Forrester said he was the fullback on the punt coverage, and he went down, and the first fumble, the guy didn't fumble. He stole the ball from him. So he didn't want to get blamed for that, so he handed the ball for, to Nitschke as they were coming up from the pile under, you know, they, they're unpiling the, the mass of bodies. <laughs> and then he said later in the game, the same thing happened with Forrest Gregg, and Nitschke grabbed the ball from him and said, hey, I want to win the car. So he was credited with two fumbles, apparently, that he didn't stop. And he won the car. <laughs> well, as you know and we know, um, Jim played in an era where he was overshadowed by another great player, another great fullback, that'd be Jim Brown, uh, which is easy to do because, of course, everyone was overshadowed by Jim Brown. But uh, Vince Lombardi once said, and I quote, Jim Brown will give you that leg, but then take it away from you. Jim Taylor will give it to you and then ram it through your chest, unquote. Cliff, that was a pretty accurate description of his style of play, wasn't it? Yeah, he ran like a man possessed. Uh, he was as tough as they come. Wasn't the biggest fullback, wasn't the fastest fullback, but, uh, boy, he was tough to tackle. Great balance um, and just outstanding determination. 
Uh, and you're right. That's part of his legacy. He was overshadowed in many ways. One by Jim Brown, who won the rushing title eight of nine years, and Taylor had those um, that run of five straight years where he surpassed a thousand yards when that was something special. And finished second to Brown, um, I think two or three times in that run, and also that's when he won his one rushing title in '62. But even in Green Bay, um, you know, he was overshadowed by Paul Horning. Taylor was the workhorse, but Horning was the guy that Lombardi said was the greatest player ever coached. He was the guy Lombardi said was the best all-around back ever to play football. Um, Horning was the guy that the play, you know, all the teammates thought was their leader, the key to the team. Um, Herb Adderley told me once, he said, Vince called him our money player, talking about Horning, and he was just that. He should have been the first player from our team in the Hall of Fame. Jerry Kramer told me he was always a star of our team, even after he stopped being the best player. So, always kind of played in his shadow to some degree, even though he had more yardage. And then there were the older fans who thought Clark Hinkle the greatest player you know, and some Mike Machowski, for example, thought Clark Hinkle was the greatest player in Packer history. And he watched, you know, he played with Hinkle and played with Hudson, I think, for a year. Uh, and then he stuck around Green Bay, and so he's able to watch those guys. And some of, some of those old timers thought Hinkle was better than uh, than Hudson. And Hinkle had the all time NFL rushing record for about eight years in the forties. So that was that was part of Taylor's misfortune. <laughs> How much of that do you think was was uh, a sort of reaction to, uh, you know, he, he always struck me as, as such a hard guy. You know, he was just a hard guy, and not everybody likes those hard guys, except on the day of the game. Then they want all the hard guys on their team. But uh, do you think any of that style that he had, or lack of style, if you want to call it that, uh, maybe led to some of those feelings that he was less than he really was? Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, he had the falling out with Lombardi at the end, but that didn't affect anything during his career. Um, I, I think one of his issues was that he was one of the few guys on those teams that was looked upon by teammates and Lombardi as an eye guy. That hurt him. <laughs> and I know Torning's stats don't translate to today's game, but... When I grew, I was, you know, a young teenager, um, old teenager by the end of the Lombardi run, saw all those games, and, you know, everybody thought Horning was the best player. Taylor was a workhorse, but Horning was the guy who always, when he was in the game, always ran the power sweep. I know they keep showing pictures of the Lombardi sweep and show Taylor running it, but the left halfback carried the ball on the power sweep. There was a weak side sweep that... Taylor ran, but uh, Max McGee was a lead blocker in that, so obviously they didn't call it a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would, if I was Jim Taylor, I'd take one look at that and say, "Give it to Horning." <laughs> Max McGee's blocking for me. Uh, it wasn't. Uh, a, it was a really effective play in Super Bowl One. Horning was gone, and that was that was a play they ran over and over, partly because the um, the Chiefs did something no NFL team did. They put a. Uh, the defensive end rather than an outside linebacker on the tight end on the right side and then uh, and they had what like it was like a 220 pound defensive end at right defensive end so Taylor ran left and ran that weak side sweep a number of times there I, I don't know how well if at all you got to know Taylor uh, you know later in life or whatever but um, you know he like Clark said earlier he was always a guy who to me 
attack the tacklers. You know, he was trying to hurt the tackler more than the tackler was trying to hurt him, uh, or at least he wanted to make it even. You got any idea where that kind of aggression came from? Because it always struck me uh, watching him when I was a, a young kid that, boy, this guy's coming there bringing a load every time. You know, there's something going on there that... I mean, he just wanted to kill you. Uh, I remember Kramer telling me one time, you know, if a tackler was coming toward him and he could run away from him, he'd turn in his direction just to hit the guy. Um, got any idea where, where perhaps some of that aggression came um, from? Yeah, I mean, you've described him perfectly. Um, that's how he was. He would look for, he'd seek out contact. Um, and he'd always rise to the occasion when he played Jim Brown. In fact, he, he and Brown faced each other three times, and he outgained him twice, including the 65 championship game, because he'd just get up in his, up on the bit, and, you know, the challenge, he always rose to the challenge. Um, I don't know, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but he was a Cajun, and the Packers had a previous fullback by the name of Howie Ferguson, who played about four or five years, and was a pretty good back. He's in the Packer Hall of Fame, and he was the same way, same area, from the same area of Louisiana, and he too was just a tough, hard-nosed football player. Taylor obviously turned out to be the much better player, the greater player, but um, there was a lot of similarities there. Hey, Cliff, what do you think Taylor's greatest accomplishment was? Well, I mean, he was critical um, to the Packers winning, four, you know, to four, winning four of the five championships. Um, you know, again, people, when the Packers won their first two titles in 61 and 62 and almost beat the Eagles in 60, uh, they were built around a power running game. It was Taylor. It was Hornig, and it was a great offensive line. Um, Bart Starr just was kind of along for the ride. So people who remember, people closer to my age, 70, 71, who remember those early championship teams, uh, think of Taylor and Horning as the standouts. They always had great defenses. 65, even since 65, I mean, they were on the brink of being eliminated, and Horning had that great game in Baltimore in the fog, and then Taylor and Hornig. Uh, Horning was a little over 100 yards, Taylor close to it in the NFL championship. I mean, the, they just pounded the Browns, uh, rushed for more than 200 yards. Um, so that even that team was built around the running back, the power running game. It wasn't really until 66 and 67 that Starr played a big role in their success. So most of the Lombardi era, the greatness of the Green Bay Packers, beside their defense, was their power running. And Taylor epitomized it. Sure. I mean, the, the, the fact that he was the uh, uh, first Packer from that group in the Hall of Fame, uh, I'm assuming that was just sort of a luck of the draw thing, correct? His career ended at a yeah, time. timing, that, yeah, right. Uh, was it timing that, that led to that, Chris? Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think that was a bad choice, but it was when those guys retired. Hornig, you know, Taylor went in the expansion draft, and so he played one year in 67. Hornig retired around the same time. I just, again... Appreciated Hornig's uh, value, some of the selectors. As Adderley said, he should have been the first guy in, but he wasn't. Right. Mm. Cliff, thanks so much for the time. Great to hear from you again, and thanks for uh, updating us on Jim Taylor. Always good to talk about him. 
My pleasure. Enjoy talking to you guys. Thanks, Cliff. Thank you, Cliff. That was former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal from Green Bay. Speaking of the Hall, we're going to take a look at this year's preliminary nominees again when we return. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Earlier in this program, we addressed former Oilers linebacker Robert Brazil and his getting his Hall of Fame ring last weekend in Houston. And maybe you saw that. I'm not sure you did, but uh, did you guys see that Hall of Fame video? I think it's up <laughs> on their website where they had Robert Brazil and Will Shields wandering through the halls at the... the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the exhibits in Canton. And they had Will Shields passing himself off as a guide. I don't know if you saw it, but it was pretty funny. And people <laughs> people had no idea who they were, just kind of going past them like, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, I did see it. It was funny. You're right. Uh, you know, it's also kind of instructional in a way, you know. Out of context, most football players, even Hall of Famers, are just some big guys who look like, you know, uh, fairly fit truck drivers. You know, and, and I think that's because the equipment makes them invisible. You know, it's not yeah, like yeah, boxing yeah. Or, or basketball where you're playing in your underwear and everybody can see you. Or even baseball, at least they can see your face. But, uh, you know, with the with the face mask and, the, and all of that, uh, I can understand where you, you know, you wouldn't. Now, you would think at some point they might have had a little half a clue. This guy's kind of pretty big to be a guy at the Hall of Fame, don't you think? But, uh, but yeah, it was funny and it was it's kind of a cool thing. I guess they've done it a couple times. Well, it's kind of like when we walked through the hall. <laughs> yeah. Well, they know you. They say, aren't you an all? They know you. That's the goose man. Yeah. Who's, those sla- who's, those, who's those two slappies you're with, Mr. Goss? Yeah. <laughs> Rick Goss will be signing autographs at 5 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> exactly. Attention, Walmart shoppers. <laughs> well, well, Ryan, I'm going to be honest with you. If I saw Will Shields out of uniform wandering the halls in Canton, I, I'm not sure I'd be able to recognize him. It's sort no, of like, it reminds me of, the, of that story told about Stan Jones and that vendor at the card store right. <laughs> you know, that you told us about years ago. If you're looking for a training car for a quarterback guy or maybe a wide receiver, a pass rush, you're looking for one of those guys, they're right here. Uh, but a Guard, uh, let me check to see if I've got him or where right. I keep him. I don't know. Right. I remember, I love Stan when he said, but I said to the guy, but he's in the Hall of Fame. And the guy said, I don't care what hall he's in. If he's a guard, he's in the commons. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I don't That's care right. what hall he's in. <laughs> That's right. Well, there are plenty of guards and tackles, and well, well, just about any offensive lineman. I think there are 15 of them on this year's preliminary ballot. And Ooh. we got those ballots in the mail, I think it was about a week ago, 10 days ago anyway, and have been asked to return them by, I think it's October 22nd, which is is next week. So uh, just wondering, has either of you sent your ballot in? Goose, have you sent yours in? Uh, nope. Plan to send it in on Friday. I'm still working through a couple positions, including the offensive line. I have already sent mine in. 25 votes for Ty Law. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, mine's loaded with uh, uh, defensive players and uh, and a bunch of new names. I think we got to yeah. get some new yeah. names in yeah. circulation. I, I agree with that. Yeah, I, I haven't sent mine in. I'll probably send it in Thursday or Friday as well. But I, I'm not going to ask you guys to reveal your choices, but I will ask you this. How difficult is this process for you? I mean, we're whittling a list of 102 names, or I guess it's 103 since Nick Lowry was left off of it inadvertently, but now is on it. Yeah, what's that anyway, tell you? Yeah, yeah, I know. What are his chances? I mean, come on. <laughs> oh, sorry. Hey, he went, to, went to Dartmouth College, 5-0, and oh, baby. Um, anyway, we're whittling that list down to 25 semifinalists, and that's not easy. No, 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 it, it's tough. You're right. Uh, but there's still, I think, a lot of guys on that 102-man list that, you know, don't really belong in the 103. 103. Sorry. Nick Lowry on there, please. <laughs> 
but but that that you know don't really belong in the Hall of Fame. You know they belong in any list of of 102 good football players for sure. Uh, so I, I don't have as that much. I mean there's still more guys than 25 guys. No question about that. But for me it's it, it gets difficult after we do this one. 25 to 15 is much harder, and the in 15 to the final five or six is so painful that it's like having a kidney stone every Super Bowl. Yeah, like Ron, it's difficult because I'm, I'm always conscious of the worthy players that have never been through the room as finalists. How many times have we said on this show and on our website that this guy has been out going for 25, 30, or 40 years, and he's never been a finalist? Yeah. So I don't just rubber stamp guys who were finalists the previous year. I look at some of the players who have never been in the room and try to include a healthy number of those guys when I cut to 25. Well, Goose, I'm glad you mentioned that because that leads me to my next question. You've been doing this, excuse me, for a long time, and you are, of course, Doctor Data. We talked about we talked about nicknames. That's a good one. That is Dr. a great one. Data. That is a great. One. You came up with Data. Doctor Data. Anyway, do you have a philosophy or, or game plan that you adhere to when you're doing your annual cutdowns for from the preliminary list to the list of 25 or semifinalists? Sure. I always start at the back of the ballot. The defensive players. Almost 57 percent of all players in the Hall of Fame were enshrined for their offense. Only 28 percent for their defense. In the game's modern era. 49% of the Enchirenians played offense, 33% played defense. We're never going to strike any kind of balance if we start uh, until we start looking harder at the worthy defensive candidates. So I, I'll, I'll always check off the worthy uh, number of players on the defensive side before I even look at the offensive side. My belt will always be heavy on defense. Ron, did you hear that? He starts yeah. from the back of the list, starts with defense. Last time I checked... Ty Law played defense. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, I'll bring that up probably 30 or 40 more times between now and uh, the next ballot to, to Gooseman. He's um, on the last page of those defensive players with the defensive backs. <laughs> That's right. Well, okay, which position, I'll start with you, Ron, which position historically gives you the most trouble or, or is the most difficult to sort through? I mentioned we have a ton of offensive linemen. I think it's 15, but we have a lot of them. But which position gives you the most trouble typically when you're going from uh, the preliminary list to the, the semifinals? Well, I think the ones with no stats take the most you know kind of outside research and that includes uh offensive in, uh, linemen and interior defensive linemen for the most part defensive tackles and nose tackles um and, and even strong side uh, i mean strong safeties uh because they aren't really in the business of amassing big numbers um uh, now going forward though i think it's going to be a different problem i think the problem is the hardest problem is going to be evaluating these quarterbacks and wide receivers yep. coming in with these with these funny money Inflated statistics. Numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's like every receiver is the greatest receiver in history because look, he caught ten thousand balls. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's it's uh, you know, it's it's it's. It, I tell you, uh, interesting fact. I looked up when I, uh, you place a value on four thousand passing yards in a in a season, you would think you would. In the fourteen game era, only one guy ever did it, Joe Namath. Last year, eight guys did it. That's twenty five percent of the league. Matt Schaub has done it or did it three times. Matt Schaub. <laughs> Three times, three times more than Joe Namath. First I mean, ballot Hall of Fame. God Almighty, you know, so that that's going to be tough. Gooseman, what gives you what position gives yeah, you the most trouble? I, I would say defensive back. You know, we're always in a rush to, like Ron said, enshrine wide receivers, but there's never a sense of urgency to, to enshrine the DBs. You know, we've enshrined twice as many wide receivers as we have cornerbacks. Has the competition on the field been that out of whack over the years? How come Eric Allen has never been a finalist? Hmm. Albert Lewis, Ken Riley. Bobby Boyd, and why are we waiting to try and tie law? Cornerbacks have never gotten a fair shake in that room. Goose raises a good point. That last point is a very good point. <laughs> well, why, why are we, are we waiting? 
Well, who presents him? Who's presenting? Well, oh, there's part of the problem. Let's move, let's move to the next question. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we have, I, I think, at least a couple guys, a few guys, in their last years of eligibility on this list, including former Atlanta star Mike Ken, and he is also a friend of the show. Now, he hasn't been a finalist before, but a year ago, neither had cornerback Everson Walls. And largely through this program, and I think, Rick's your efforts, um, he got the votes to make it to the final 15. Now, do you guys think there's any chance of that happening with Mike Ken or anyone else? Goose, you've seen the list. I would hope Ken gets a look. I would hope Willie Anderson gets a look. I would hope Richmond Webb gets a look. I would hope Chris Hinton gets a look. I would hope Lomas Brown gets a look. Every one of those guys, we're going to say in the 24th year, you know, this is his last year and he's never been yeah. in the room. You know, there's never a shortage of candidates at offensive tackle. You know, but because it is his last year, Mike Ken will be on my ballot. Wow. Okay. Well, Ron, we always say this is your 24th year, and you've always been in the room. So right. what are you going? What are you going to do here right. with that? I mean, is there anyone on that list you see? That, I mean, Ken, do you think he's got a shot? I don't really. Uh, uh, which is not the same as saying he's not deserving. Uh, would I you vote said, for him? Uh, I would. Uh, in fact, I would tend to vote for him uh, before some of these guys that have already been in the room, even though some yeah. people think it's all going to uh, a coronation for all these. But I think his problem is going to be you've got. Uh, a number of those offensive linemen uh, from last year, uh, and a lot of guys will automatically carry them into. I think they should just not star on the ballot, I you know, guys be, uh, who were there yes. last year, because yes. half these guys wouldn't remember. Yep. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, just, well, I, I remember a year ago we had all-decade safety, and that's Leroy Butler, who I'm pretty high on. He made it to the semifinals for the first time. Now, um, how would you gauge his chances of, A, getting there again, and, B, advancing to the final 15 because both he and Steve Atwater, who's also a friend of the show, both of them are friends of the show. Everyone's a friend of the show. <laughs> anyway, both of them were first-team all-decade choices, and only Steve Atwater has been a finalist, and that was once in 2016. So, Ron... What do you think's next for Leroy Butler? Well, you know, he's a very deserving player, in my opinion. Uh, but I don't like his chances. I mean, I don't like Iowa's chances either, frankly. Uh, but to me, if you're a first-team all-decade player, they should adjust those rules that that automatically gets you in the room one time. Because yep. the bulk of how many Hall of Famers had a better-than-10-year career at a Hall of Fame level? You know, I would say yep. I would venture to say not very many. Um, but in, in Butler's case, I, I just think he's another guy uh, – you know, that somehow people have forgotten how good the guy was. And, look, he played on good teams. Now, I understand he was a green man. It wasn't like people didn't see him on, on, on national television. But time goes by, and you just uh, forget him. i never forget uh, I was talking to Atwater a couple years ago in Denver after a Patriot game. And Scott Zola came by. He goes, was that Steve Atwater? I said, yeah. And he goes, he's really big. I said, yeah, he was also really good. So you, you should thank God that you never had to play against him. Uh, you know, but people have forgotten Leroy Butler. And, and, and frankly, I hate to say it, but I think uh, more than a few members of our committee have forgotten him. Yeah, we know the problem. There are three all-decade safeties in the 80s and another from the 70s that have never been discussed. It has nothing to do with the career. It has to do with the position he played. And cut down yeah. to 25, I will say that Leroy Butler will be on my ballot. It's going to be on mine, too, says Mike Ken. Yep. Uh, Goose, three votes. Goose, you have a long shot favorite you'd like to see get through to the next round? Yeah, I got lots of them all on defense. Clay Matthews, Wilbur Marshall, Leroy Glover. You know, these men all deserve to be in the room to have their careers discussed and debated by the full committee. And I fear How about you, Ron? Um, I got a long shot. Uh, a guy, there's plenty of them on that list. Uh, and it's Mark Bavaro to get him to the final mm -hmm. 25. Uh, and I would ask you guys this. If we, if we had one tough game to win to win a championship, 
and you could have Tony Gonzalez or Mark Bavaro to play tight end for you, who would you take? Ditka. Ditka's <laughs> not available. Ditka. Mackie. <laughs> no, if you gotta, I'm saying, if you got to pick between those two guys, which one would you want in the game? Bavaro. He's been on our show. Gonzalez hasn't been. <laughs> oh, there you go. The, guy with the, jewelry. the other guy's a wide receiver. He's not a tight end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, hey, you know, how about Sterling and if Sharp? You put, guys? I mean, if you put him in, wide, in, the, in the wide receiver pool, Tony Gonzalez, they wouldn't be talking about him as a first ballot. That's right. That, that's right. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about Sterling Sharp with long shots. I mean, he never gets any traction. And, and I don't know, maybe it's because he's not such a great guy to deal with. And I guess I mean kind there. But I'll tell you what. Um, he was a monster on the football field, Ron. I know you're a supporter. I, Love him. I might put him at the top of the list of wide receivers, though. You know, Isaac Bruce is right there, too. But this guy's sort of been forgotten, too. Yeah, no, he has been. And it's, uh, uh, you know, terrible, really. I don't I don't know. Uh, <laughs> look, we put in a lot of guys that weren't the nicest guys in the world. So I, yeah, I just right. have a right. hard time believing that that's the problem. I don't know what the problem is. Maybe Goose knows. Goose, you're a Sharp fan? Uh, you know, it, it was a coin toss in the early 90s. Who was a better receiver, Sharp or Rice? If you're in that discussion, you need to be in the Hall of Fame discussion. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's just I do think his person, his personality, unfortunately, weighs against him. But as you mentioned, Ron, we, we put a lot of guys who are not real good to get along with into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and rightly so, yes. because they deserve to be in there based on what they did on the field. So anyway. Right, Ron, um, Sharp or Law? Say again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sharp. Ron? Oh, Sharper Law. Law. Law would cover Sharp. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll tell, tell you what choice I'm going to make. I'm going to choose to go to commercial, guys, because that's where we got to go right now. Up next, the two-minute drill. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about out of time, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir. It's the two-minute drill. Gooseman, get us started. Jared Goff or Patrick Mahomes? Hard to say, Goose. Both already are legends. <laughs> I'm going to go with Jared Goff because Patrick Mahomes looks like he's 13. <laughs> Dave and Clowney tackled Buffalo running back Chris Avery by his dreadlocks. How long for the NFL outlaws tackling by the hair? As soon as Tom Brady grows dreads. Or any quarterback grows, grows a ponytail. <laughs> Which offense is most likely to score 60 points in a game this season? The Atlanta Hawks. Chiefs, they got speed to burn. Any opponent. <laughs> Which defense is most likely to allow 60 points in a game this season? Chiefs, they have more holes than Sonny Corleone. <laughs> Raiders, they not only can't play defense, they quit. <laughs> Brock Osweiler gave the Dolphins their first 300-yard pass a game of the season and first zero-sack game as well in Miami's upset of the Bears. Does that spell a quarterback controversy in Miami? No, it spells trouble for Chicago. No longer Monsters of the Midway or South Beach. I would say no, but what, what it does spell, Goose, is ongoing mystery injuries to Ryan Tannehill. Adam Thielen has opened the season with an NFL record six consecutive 100-yard receiving. Can any defense slow him down? Yep, Giants. They have Eli Apple, cornerback. And Goose, as you know, Adam doesn't go well with apples. <laughs> That's pretty clever. Uh, I would say the one that they're going to face on their bye week. Devontae Adams, Amy Adams, or an ice-cold Sam Adams on a summer's day? Adams family, home to Cousin It. Tried tackling him by his hair. 
Edie Adams, who would make Amy Adams look like Sam Adams. Absolutely. The Broncos have allowed two consecutive 200-yard rushers. Bad players, bad game plans, or bad tackling. All of the above. Bad effort. Actually, no effort. Larry Fitzgerald hasn't caught a TD pass yet in six games a season. His dad is now criticizing the Arizona coaches. Does father know best? Goose, the last father who knew best, sent his son here 2,000 years ago. His, his father's a sports writer, so he knows everything. Answer our Talk of Fame Network poll question. Who's the best chief not in the Hall of Fame? Sitting Bull. <laughs> Very good. Jim Tyra, but as the tragic end of his life, unfortunately, will keep him a forgotten man. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Ron McDowell, John Clayton, and Cliff Crystal for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, tune in next week to this station and at this time. We'll be here. We hope you will be too.